a good magician never reveals his secrets. To do so would be to steal away the joy of mystery from his audience. After all, magic tricks depend on illusion and misdirection. A good performer is very practiced at directing the focus of the audience away from one thing and onto another. And so when a magic trick is explained, it somehow becomes far less magical, much more droll. Once a deception is understood, it becomes far less intriguing. So too with false teaching. Once the deception is understood, it becomes far less alluring. After all, heresy, that is belief which is contrary to sound doctrine, depends on illusion and misdirection. A good false teacher is practiced at directing the focus of his listeners away from the truth and onto something else. And while heretics may not pull rabbits out of hats, they do cause the faith of many to disappear. We're going to be in Titus chapter 1 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. And we're going to see this morning that false teaching brings ruin to its pupils and that it must be unmasked by the gospel. Paul is exhorting Titus. He's, he's talking about also to the qualified teachers that are there. He's saying that qualified teachers must protect the church from unqualified teachers by teaching healthy doctrine and correcting virulent doctrine. And so our, our main idea this morning as we consider the text is going to be this. Healthy teaching produces and preserves healthy churches. Only the gospel creates and cultivates genuine faith. Healthy teaching produces and preserves healthy churches, and we're going to see that it does that by identifying false teaching and correcting false teaching. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we thank you that we can trust our past to your mercy, our present to your love, and our future to your providence. We ask that you would cause our faith and our confidence in you this morning to swell. Amen. So to remind you, Paul has introduced himself, and he has exhorted Titus to appoint qualified elders to shepherd the people of God. Now we see in verse 10 part of the reason why. Would you read with me? For there are also many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party, that's Judaism. It's necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Rebellious people here is literally translated insubordinate people. The same word that Paul uses in verse 6 to describe the kind of children that would prevent a church from appointing a man as an elder. And so I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that these rebellious people, they're like unruly children. They think they know best, and they reject the authority in their life, in this case the authority of the church. These false teachers have supplanted order in favor of chaos. 
And they're utilizing the church as a platform from which they can propagate their wrong-headed teaching. They're not motivated by the good of the people, but by financial greed. They are true Cretans, Paul says. Liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Very intense language. It's accurate language. And notice, what I, one of the things I want you to notice is the contrast between these people here, whom I'm going to designate as anti-elders, these false teachers, and those that Paul has told Titus to appoint as leaders of the church. And so we're going to see that there's a big difference between these elders, the people that the church should follow, and the anti-elders, these false teachers that lead many astray. See, elders are to give instruction in sound doctrine. These anti-elders are to be silenced. Elders are to serve and shepherd the people of God. These anti-elders devour them. Elders are not greedy. These anti-elders teach for money, saying things like, if you're going to be a fool for God, you might as well be a rich fool. Elders are to be honest, holy, disciplined, sensible, and lovers of good. These anti-elders are liars, beasts, gluttons. I mean, Paul's point is that these anti-elders promote themselves and preach falsehoods. They're not godly leaders. Even though they profess to know God, they continue in rebellion against him by being insubordinate to the elders, insubordinate to the gospel. Paul is saying loud and clear here, follow elders, follow qualified men, follow the gospel, not false teaching, not these unqualified men. I think Tim Chester, Chester is helpful here. Paul's warning is this. Don't be self-willed. Don't be independent. Don't assume that you know best. Be willing to sit under authority. We need other people around us. I think this is true. We need other Christians around us to hold us accountable, to help us hold and live according to the truth of the gospel in our lives. We need godly elders to teach the truth, and to identify counterfeits. So the question for us is, do we allow pastor elders and others into our lives? Are you insubordinate? Do you have a problem with authority? Are you always insisting on your way rather than submitting to the way of truth. Church, if we are insubordinate to God's commands, even simple ones, to gather together regularly, to submit to our leaders, if we insist that we know better than he does, we'll find that though we profess God, we deny him by our works. Theology always reveals itself in biography. Belief always bears itself out in behavior. And wrong teaching always leads to wrong living. And so Paul writes a barbed prescription for false teaching and false teachers in verse 11. They must be silenced. I mean, more literally, it means they must be muzzled. They're like a dog that won't quit barking. Their mouths need to be stopped. Why? 
Well, he continues, they overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Some have suggested here that the households in view are actually house churches. But regardless of whether we are considering house churches or nuclear families, the the point is clear. False teaching is deadly. Believing lies is ruinous. Entire households are being destroyed. People in churches are being raised because they have been seduced by the charm of myths. So how should Titus, the elders, and other church leaders respond to this false teaching? Paul tells them in verse 13, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. Then we can deduce that if Paul is exhorting Titus and the elders he has appointed to correct people so they don't devote themselves to myths and the commands of men, that they are, in fact, devoting themselves to myths and the commands of men, which shouldn't surprise us. Who doesn't love a good story? Who doesn't love a, a plump, jolly character who sports a beard, flies a sleigh, keeps a list of naughty and nice, and shimmies down the chimney once a year? Or a bunny who has colored eggs and hides them around your home. Or a particular fairy that breaks into your house and steals your teeth and replaces them with cash, all undetected. Which is actually a little creepy now that I think about it. I think a more serious and accepted myth in our culture sounds more like this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Or stated differently, all beliefs are equally valid. These statements couldn't be more wrong. You can believe something with all seriousness and be sincerely wrong. And a wrong belief is inferior to a true belief. For example, I could believe and sincerely believe that I won the Powerball last week. But I'm not going to be able to collect on that, no matter how hard I try. Or maybe, as I do every preseason in football. I sincerely believe that West Virginia is going to win the national championship. The likelihood of pigs flying is probably going to, that's probably going to happen first. Perhaps a better example are um, those who are continually trumpeting the end of the world. I mean, they're serious about this belief, right? It's not so long ago, Harold Camping and his followers were handing out pamphlets and putting up billboards for the second time because they were wrong the first time. They sincerely believed that the world would end on October 21st, 2011. They were wrong that time too. It's 2016. But they believed it sincerely. Camping and others were sincere in their beliefs. But they were sincerely wrong. It's true that many myths and stories, well, they're all in good fun. But myths become perilous when they are believed as truths when people build their lives upon those lies. The saints in Crete had begun devoting themselves to fictions rather than the faith, and the consequences were dire. We might ask, what exactly is being taught that is causing their households to be ruined? We're not told precisely right here. But I think we do learn of it elsewhere. We've run into these rebellious, these insubordinate teachers before. Paul calls them the circumcision group. 
for those of you that were here way back when, a couple years ago when I first started, we went through Galatians. And that's where we met them. In chapter 2, recall, Peter, a disciple of Christ, chief of the apostles, had been eating Gentile food, that's non-Jewish food, been eating Gentile food and drinking Gentile wine with Gentiles. Until one day, in Galatians 2.12 we read, certain men came from James. He used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the, here it is, circumcision group. This circumcision group, if you remember, said, you become a Christian by faith in Jesus. But to stay a Christian or grow as a Christian or to be a good Christian, you need to be circumcised and to keep all the Jewish laws. These teachers sought to make Gentile Christians subject to Jewish law or or some kind of human code of conduct. And they were tricky. So much so that Peter is led astray by them. But not only Peter, Barnabas also, we see in in 2.13 of Galatians 2. Yeah, Galatians 2.13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is this character, he's called a son of encouragement. We think of him as huggable and lovable, sound in the faith. He's led astray by Peter's sin. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors had a formula, and I've told you this before, see if you can remember. He had a formula, he said, if you take someone's stated belief and you add that to their actual practice, it will yield or give to you their actual belief. It's a fancy way of saying what you live reveals what you believe. And when we sin, as Peter sinned, in that moment, we are believing the myth that somehow sin will bring us satisfaction. That somehow doing whatever that wrong action is will be better for us than obeying the word of God. When we sin, we move our belief that Jesus is all-satisfying. We trust in something else. Peter's untrue belief in Galatians, well, it resulted in others sinning. I mean, he led even Barnabas astray. Untrue beliefs are dangerous. They're dangerous for us and for others. Sin is an infectious disease, and it spreads like gangrene. I wonder, what do your actions say about what you believe? If Peter can find himself in sin because of false teaching, so can we. If Peter needed other Christians to ensure he held firmly to the truth of the gospel, so do we. And I cannot stress enough how vital it is for every Christian to belong to other Christians by way of committed church membership. Brothers and sisters, it is for your good that God calls you to be a part of the church and to submit to its leaders. Do it. It's a circumcision group that we saw in Galatians and we see them here again and they they help us to understand 
Paul's words in verse 14, says to Titus that he's to warn those under the circumcision group's influence so that they won't pay attention to Jewish myths or merely human commands of those who turn away from the truth. I think it's important to note that these anti-elders, they're not licentatious. They're not giving license to sin. But they're strict religious people, giving legalisms and rules. They're giving more commandments to obey, more rules to follow. Which again, harkens us back to our one-sentence summary of Galatians. I'm not going to ask you to try to remember it. I can't remember what I preached three weeks ago sometimes. But we said this, Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's how we summarize the book of Galatians. And it applies here. Any Jesus plus gospel is no gospel. Any Jesus plus theology is always a Jesus minus theology. If you try to add to Jesus, you always take away from him and you lose the gospel. Still, though, there's something utterly human within us that that compels us to try and add to the gospel. We want to earn our way, even though we know we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. We are always susceptible to trying to prove our worth to God. We're prone to put our faith in our own good deeds rather than the righteousness of Christ. We want to believe in our own lives rather than his substitutionary life, death, and resurrection. I think because of this bent towards trusting self instead of trusting Jesus, that church is actually a very dangerous place for us to be. You see, a church is a dangerous place to be because it's a place wherein people can come and become religious. It's a place where we can come and make very simple changes to our behavior. And then, by virtue of our behavior modification, never actually hear or be transformed by the gospel. See, religious people, good people, have a hard time comprehending their sinfulness and their need for the gospel of grace. In his book Onward, Dr. Moore recounts an experience he had that illustrates how this type of behavior modification through religious activity serves as an impediment to faith. This is what he writes. Early in my ministry, I found myself suddenly in the middle of a culture war with no idea where the trenches were. I was a youth pastor in my hometown just down the street from an Air Force base. Like every other evangelical youth minister, I received constant advertisements from curriculum hawkers telling me how I could be relevant to today's teenagers, usually by connecting with them through popular culture. I couldn't do that well, so I just fell back on being me and preached the gospel the best I could. There were two groups that divided the youth group. The first group was made up of church kids, those who did what was expected in the Bible Belt made professions of faith, followed by baptism as young children. These kids knew the gospel from start to last. They could rattle off all the right answers at will. The gospel neither surprised nor alarmed them. They knew how to embrace just enough of an almost gospel, to stay within the tribe without embracing so much gospel as to encounter the lordship of Christ. As time went on, another group of teenagers started to trickle in our Wednesday night Bible studies. The second group was 
mostly fatherless boys and girls, some of them gang members, all of them completely unfamiliar with the culture of the church and with the message of the gospel. Some of them unwittingly reversed the Protestant Reformation by persistently calling me Father more, just because the only clergy they'd ever seen were Catholic priests in movies. Prayer request time often proved interesting and challenging. Recall one girl asking for prayer that she wouldn't get pregnant that weekend since she'd run out of birth control bills and her boyfriend didn't like to wear a condom. Some of them would show up in a cloud of marijuana. The church was so strange to them, they didn't even know what to hide. The church kids, though, learned the dark side of Bible Belt culture. How to know the books of the Bible in order. How to answer all the right questions in small group discussion. And how to get drunk and have sex and smoke marijuana and do other drugs without their parents ever knowing it recognizing that many of the baptized kids in my orbit were in fact pagan. I shared the gospel with them consistently, but kept hitting wall after invincible wall of intelligence and self-righteousness. The unchurched kids laughed at the Bible studies based on television shows or songs of the moment. They weren't impressed at all by video clips provided by my denomination's publisher or the knockoff Christian boy bands crooning about the hotness of sexual purity. What riveted their attention wasn't what was relatable to them, but what wasn't. They were so drawn to, they were not drawn to our sameness, but to our strangeness. So, like you really believe this dead guy came back to life? One of the unchurched 15-year-old boys asked me one day. I do, I replied. He said, wait, for real? I responded, yeah, for real. He blinked and whispered, Dude, that's crazy. But he stayed around, and he listened. The church kids and some of their parents were outraged. Didn't I know, they asked, that some of these adolescents were in gangs, that they smoked weed and had sex? It was beside the point that almost all of these things, save for gang membership, were going on among the church kids, too. The point was they knew how to behave. I explained that how to behave could be translated as how to hide sin through a cycle of Saturday decadence and Sunday repentance. But that didn't change their minds. I realized what I was dealing with was a culture war in miniature. The churched family saw the lost kids from the outside as the culture, the very thing they were supposed to protect their families from. They assumed that the youth group was supposed to be an outpost of the Bible Belt with pizza parties and family values, protecting their kids from teen pregnancy or drug addiction or anything else that might wreck their lives. Couldn't see that they were a part of that culture too. And that the culture they wanted to war against was right there, upstairs from them, in their own children's bedrooms. The mission of the gospel didn't make sense to them because they had forgotten who they were. I think the line of Dr. Moore's that most struck me is this. They knew how to embrace just enough of an almost gospel to stay within the tribe without embracing so much gospel as to encounter the lordship of Christ. What an accurate description of so many so-called nominal Christians 
embracing just enough gospel to come on Christmas and Easter and a few times throughout the year, but never encountering, encountering true lordship of Jesus Christ. The church men and women of Dr. Moore's youth group and their parents learned good Christian behavior. They learned how to do good moral things, how to be considered good people. But they were never changed by the grace of God. Religious people, good people, have a hard time comprehending the desperate nature of their sinfulness and their need for Jesus Christ to rescue them. The myth they believe, if I do the right things, God will accept me, is deadly. It says, say the right words, do the right things, and you're good. This lie causes its believer to put their faith in their own performance rather than Christ. And just as a single drop of ink can defile and render undrinkable a pure glass of water, false teaching, even a drop, can pervert and destroy the pure grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. The fiction of salvation by works exists among us today. But it is not new. Remember in Mark 7, Jesus confronted the Pharisees over their wrong-headed ideas about what it meant to be in community with God. He said to them in verse 6, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites for two reasons. Their actions are merely external and do not come from their hearts, which are actually far from God. And their teaching is more accurately reflective of the doctrines of men rather than those of God. I mean, this, this is pivotal to understand. Because it shows us that while we can say the right words, do the right things, honor God with our lips, that we can still be far from God. Jesus continues to make this point in verse 14 of the same chapter. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Disciples don't quite get it, so he continues down in verse 20. What comes out of a person, that defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, from the heart, and they defile a person. And this truth is crucial for you to grasp if you want to understand the gospel. Your external actions cannot purchase your salvation. Behavior modification cannot make you holy and pure before God. Religious actions from a Christless heart leave one as far from God as do irreligious actions. Humanity's problem is not that we've done sinful things. 
but that we have sinful hearts. And from our sinful hearts, we rage against our Creator. Our problem is not outside of us, but inside. The solution to your problem, to humanity's problem, it's not behavior modification, though that is the most popular myth. The solution to our problem is a heart transplant. When you believe in Jesus, it's because he removes the sinful, dead heart of stone within you and replaces it with the holy, spiritual heart of flesh. Christians are saved not because of what they have done or do, but because of who God has made them by grace through faith in Jesus. Man-made religion does not save. And it works from the outside in. But Christianity, religion that does save, is from the inside out. I mean, do you see why church could be a dangerous place for you if you're not a Christian? It's easy to come to church, honor God with your lips, change some behavior patterns in your life, all the while remaining far from God. Friends, don't overlook the fact that Paul is addressing Christians here. I think we do well to examine our own hearts and contemplate if we've slipped into believing myths rather than the gospel. Another interesting part of the text is the contrast between the pure and those devoted to myths and the commands of men. Verse 15. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. Those devoted to false teaching and following the commands of men are those who are described as professing to know God, but denying Him by their lives. One would think that adherence to commands would increase holiness, but the opposite is true. Because laws and rules that look as though they are promoting godliness are actually about limiting it. They reduce godliness to ticking some boxes. As long as I do this, that, and the other, I'm okay. Or as in this case, as long as I'm circumcised and follow the rules, I'm godly. I wonder, church, have we reduced godliness to ticking some boxes? Okay, we've got church and Sunday school and Bible study, a couple meetings. As long as I do two of those things and read my Bible a few days of the week, then I'm good. Friends, any question about Christian living that begins, what must I do, or ends, is that enough? Well, those questions are born of legalism that wants to limit godliness, wants to dilute it down from a whole life commitment to a part-time project. True godliness doesn't say, how much must I do? But rather, how much can I give? when we truly grasp and are changed by the gospel of grace, we ask the question, 
How can I express my love to God? How can I give everything to the one who gave all for me? And Jesus tells us the answer in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So Christ's followers delight in expressing their love for Jesus through their affectionate obedience. Do you see the difference? Legalism says you should not do this. The gospel says you need not do this because God is always bigger and better than sin. Legalism says I must do that. The gospel says I get to do that. And at the end of the day, the heart is what distinguishes the pure from the defiled. To the pure, everything is pure. It's something of a proverb, of a pithy saying, maybe a maxim. It's a test of moral character, which echoes that teaching of Jesus in Mark 7 that we looked at. The only purity that counts is that which comes through faith in Christ. Those who attempt to purify themselves by outside external actions, simply by behavior modification, instead of trusting in Jesus, remain stained by sin, dead in their sins, unclean and unbelieving. The untrue belief that you can earn salvation by being really a good person is deadly. Which is why Paul's exhortation to correct false teaching is so firm. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Correction is key. It's a good thing. Correction wounds in order to heal. I mean, the description of the false teachers and their followers is scathing. It's amazing how the people are condemned as liars, beasts, gluttons, corrupted in mind and in heart, hypocrites. It's an amazing description, and it's an accurate one, not only of them, but of us. Apart from the corrective antidote of the gospel, the disease of sin malignantly flows through the veins of every person. Apart from Jesus, we are all terminal. Apart from Jesus, we cannot know God or have life. But the gospel brings us hope with its rebuke. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus and be saved. What a loving correction. Hope comes from rebuke. Life comes from correction. Spiritual health comes from healthy teaching. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I think an accurate paraphrase would be, teach them truth so they might believe the truth and obey the truth happily. Earlier I identified the them that is to be rebuked as those that are led astray by false teachers, but the them here is more ambiguous. I think it's on purpose. Because I think it applies to both the false teachers and their followers. Friends, the truth of the gospel is powerful enough to save anyone. Our God is mighty to save anyone, even false teachers. Jesus gives abundant life to all who will willingly submit his correction. Are you willing to be corrected by the gospel? Perhaps more difficultly, 
or difficult, I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> perhaps harder for us to do is to correct one another with the gospel. I think we're hesitant to lovingly correct one another, but we need to. Because we are all prone to exchange the strangeness of Christianity for safety in the status quo. All tempted to exchange the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, in favor of things that are new, novel, and trendy. Many have. Many have abandoned the truth of the gospel in favor of myths because they were untaught, unprayed for. One thinks of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Or of Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian science. Both in the last hundred years or so. I mean, they, they, before they started these false religions, they were in churches. I wonder how things might have been different if elders and others in those churches would have taken time to correct their wrong-headed ideas and then to invite their difficult questions about the faith. I'm almost certain they were surrounded by nice people who said nice things and shook their hands on Sunday morning. But wouldn't it have been better for them to have been surrounded by faithful brothers and sisters who loved them enough to rebuke them? Let's care enough about one another to correct one another with love. Some Christian fairy tales are always conceived and born when the church stops correcting false teaching. When we as a people stop devoting ourselves to learning and submitting to sound doctrine taught by qualified teachers, we believe lies. Good teaching, though, always exposes false teaching. The authentic, undiluted gospel always shines light onto the counterfeit. It's like one of those markers you put on a $100 bill to see if it's fake or not. I wonder, do you know the gospel well enough to distinguish it from a counterfeit? When I first got married, uh, one of the things I made clear to my wife was that we were only to have one type of mustard. All other mustards were fake. They were insufficient. We were to have French's mustard, best. And so we always had French's mustard. So I thought. You see, what my wife did was very cruel. She purchased one bottle of French's mustard at the beginning of our marriage and subsequently refilled it with store brand. I had no idea until she told me a couple years in. You see, I couldn't tell that I was having subpar mustard because I didn't know the good mustard as well as I thought I did. You see, the, the lesser mustard was able to cut the mustard because I didn't know the real thing well enough. How well do you know the gospel? Can you distinguish it from counterfeits? Can you summarize it in a sentence or tell someone how they might know Jesus? Paul exhorts Titus to appoint elders so they might lead the churches across the island of Crete in preaching and protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
because healthy teaching produces and preserves healthy churches. Let us make it one of our ambitions to promote healthy teaching so that our church might be healthy, so that we might bring God glory together. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we twist that which was created for our pleasure into the source of our meaning, the bulwark of our hope and the foundation of our happiness. Keep us from believing lies and following after fables. Keep reminding us of the truth. Jesus, that you lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead, proving your person and your power, your victory over death, so that we too, by faith, might enjoy victory over death. Freedom from the penalty, power, and presence of sin, and eternal life in community with you and one another. Lord, thank you for giving us joy beyond the walls of this world. Holy Spirit, empower us to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that we might be able to encourage and correct one another with sound doctrine, with the wonderful gospel of grace. Father, thank you for your offer that as wicked and as terrible as we all are, we're all sinners. We've all earned death. But you love us and offer to us life if we'll simply come to you with nothing and say, save me. That you have beckoned us to come and drink of you the living water that we might never again thirst. Father, help us to submit ourselves to the correction of this good news. Amen.